Welcome to the HR Room Podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR, where we talk to business leaders from around Ireland and share their advice on how to create the HR systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, simply visit www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Okay, let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the HR Room podcast. Managing a redundancy process is a challenge for any HR professional. In addition to the unfortunate circumstances and effects it may have on a colleague's livelihood, the law and process around redundancies can also add complexity to a process that's already far from enjoyable. However, it is a process that many of us will have to face and is also grabbing many of the headlines across Ireland in recent months. So let us help by looking deeper at this topic through two cases in particular. And to take a closer look at this topic today, we're delighted to be joined again by Adrian Toomey, partner at Jacob and Toomey Solicitors. Thanks for joining us, Adrian. How are you? I'm great, Owen. Thank you. And, and uh, it's lovely to be joining you today. Yeah, lovely to have you back. And as always, we're joined by our very own Mary Cullen, founder and managing director here at Insight HR. How are you, Mary? I'm great. Thanks, Owen. And great to have you here, Adrian. Thanks, Mary. Perfect. So we jump right in and I know we're kind of looking at a couple of cases and we're going to talk about some of the key details, Adrian. So I might come to yourself first, just to kick us off with our first case, um, which concerns Lloyd's Pharmacy, Adrian. Can you tell us a little bit about the details here and the outcome, please? Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting case. Owen, uh, a lady by the name of uh, Rabbit was working in the Lloyd's Pharmacy outlet in Newbridge and uh, was told by her employer that they were closing that uh, retail outlet um, and that they wanted her to move uh, to another uh, store in, in Nace. And she objected to that move um, on the basis that she had constructed her life um, uh, around uh, working in the Newbridge outlet. Uh, her children were in school nearby. She would have had further to travel to and from work. Uh, I think there was evidence given at the Workplace Relations Commission that uh, on the employer's side that it would have been an extra 10 minutes travel um, and on the employee's side that it was hundreds of hours per annum. Um, I, I did a quick Google search myself the other day and uh, it seemed to be an extra 20 minutes in each direction, but uh, without knowing the employee's precise address, I might be wrong on that. Either way, she was going to be traveling a bit more to, to get to work and the different location didn't suit her. So she said, no, this is a redundancy situation. You're closing the store at which I work in Newbridge and you have to pay me uh, a redundancy lump sum payment under the Redundancy Payments Act. And they said, uh, no, we don't, because even though there's a redundancy situation, we're making a reasonable offer of alternative employment to you. And if you refuse that reasonable offer of alternative employment, then you become disentitled to a redundancy lump sum payment. Now, there are two key principles of redundancy related law at play in the case. Uh, the first is that there must be a genuine redundancy situation. Um, 
And the Redundancy Payments Act set out five different definitions of redundancy. And if you fall into any of those five different definitions or five different buckets of redundancy, then you become entitled to a redundancy lump sum. And the first of those definitions, Owen, is the idea that there's a redundancy situation if an employer is ceasing to carry on business or is ceasing to carry on the business at a particular location. Now, to my mind, it couldn't have been more clear cut. They were closing their new bridge shop. And so the employer was ceasing to carry on um, business at that particular location. So there was a genuine redundancy situation and that created an expectation on the part of Ms. Rabbit that she would get a redundancy lump sum payment. The employer, Lloyd's Pharmacy, were relying on another provision in the Redundancy Payments Act, which says that if the employee unreasonably refuses an alternative offer of employment, then they're not entitled to a redundancy lump sum. And that's because the state doesn't want people actively seeking to be out there on the dole. Um, they, they want them to, to take up reasonable offers of alternative employment. But sometimes you can find that employers will, will try to play that card uh, a little too readily to avoid having to shell out redundancy lump sums. And the question that the WRC had to answer really was, was it reasonable for Ms. Rabbit to refuse the move to uh, the NACE outlet? Could she insist on getting her redundancy lump sum payment? And ultimately the WRC concluded that it was reasonable for her to refuse a move to another store in another town that was some distance away and that would have caused uh, significant disruption uh, to her private life. Um, so the conclusion was that she was entitled to redundancy payment in, in the amount of approximately 22,000 euros. There's one other wrinkle in the case, and I'm sorry for blathering on for too long as usual. One other wrinkle in the case, and that's around mobility clauses. So there was a mobility clause in her contract. And you'll see these clauses in employment contracts all the time where the employer says, you'll be required to work at this location or at such other location as we may determine or to which we might move. Um, they said that there was a mobility clause in her employment contract and therefore it was reasonable for them to ask her to move to the NACE location. Um, she pointed out that the mobility clause didn't require her to move to another location. It simply said that she could be asked to move and therefore her agreement was necessary and she wasn't agreeing to, to move to NACE because it would cause too much disruption for her and the WRC uh, agreed with her. And so after 18 years of service, um, Ms. Rabbit uh, left the employment, sued under the redundancy payments legislation and was awarded 22,000 euro. Sorry, Owen, I've, I've gone on far too long as usual. And I'm sure Mary has uh, a number of observations on the case mm -hmm. as well. So apologies. No, no worries at all. And it's actually a perfect segue on to my next question, Adrian. And I'll come to yourself first, Mary, if that's okay. And it's something we kind of intentionally wanted to, to speak about on, the, on this podcast. Mary, there is a few kind of key legal obligations, key points here, isn't there, when it comes to redundancy? Kind of, I know there's two or three little topics there. Say little topics, they're huge topics. Could you give us your kind of perspectives on them, Mary? What are the kind of key legal obligations and key points from your side of things? 
Of course. But before I do, Adrian, I could listen to you all day. So I would never say you rabbit on. All very interesting um, and very relevant to our audience. Um, so I, I'm going to pick up on two points. Um, one, the business case. And um, as Adrian says, we're talking about you know, what's the logic for the redundancy in the first case? And in this particular case, you can see that they had a, a clear cut reason to um, start the process uh, of putting someone at risk and talking to them about alternative employment. And that was because the, the pharmacy was shutting down. But I find at a practical level, so step away from the law as such um, in the first instance, when we talk to our clients, the first thing we'll do when somebody asks us or tells us that they're either in a position that from a financial perspective that they need to uh, consider redundancies or that they're uh, restructuring the organization for whatever reason and they're considering redundancies or they have a performance issue and they're considering a redundancy. And, you know, generally we will work through with our clients a kind of a process where, where we will say, okay, go away and put down on a piece of paper uh, the reasons why you're considering uh, the redundancy in the first place. Pen, jot it down, pencil and paper. Um, nothing overly structured, but I want you to think through what's the logic? What are you doing? Why are you doing it? What is the logic? And is it the right course of action for the organization and for the situation that you're dealing with? And um, usually it's more clear cut. If there's a financial imperative and you have to shave uh, hundreds of thousands off the bottom line, uh, you know, it's usually fairly clear cut and you'll be able to back up that logic with your accounts, with your uh, review of your um, overheads and your labor costs and all of those things. Um, but we would be asking people to look at, well, what steps are you taking? What practical steps have you taken? So if you need to shave hundreds of thousands off your bottom line, before we even look at labor costs, have you looked at other things first? Have you looked at a, a way of avoiding or minimizing the impact on the individual. And we look at things like layoff, we look at things like short term, we look at things like career breaks, we look at a whole range of things that the employer might consider instead of um, actually making roles redundant. When it comes to restructuring, again, you, you know, it's we're, we're closing a division, we're closing a shop, we're closing um, a product line, we're, we're no longer doing something that we use to do before. And so, again, we'll be going through the logic, who's there, uh, what pool of people are affected, etc. And I know we'll talk later about selection, Adrian, because that's a thorny issue. Um, and then we look at the whole area of a single redundancy and um, why. So sometimes our clients will come to us with a proposal for a single redundancy. And I'll always question, and so will the team here, why? What's going on? You know, is it that something has stopped? Is it that something is changing? Are you restructuring? Why? 
And often it's a performance issue and an employer mistakenly believes that we can handle this particular issue through redundancy uh, rather than deal with it um, as a performance issue or as a disciplinary issue. And again, we'll go through various steps to discuss the logic there. Um, So in my mind, the business case or the logic behind the redundancy uh, or are you in compliance with the law in what you're thinking about doing are key. And the management team, Uh, or the leadership team, the CEO, the individual business owner needs to spend time thinking that through first before you ever look at who you're selecting, how you're doing it, who you're going to talk to, when you're going to talk to, when it's going to happen. This is key. And we spend a lot of time with our clients just here at that point, trying to help them think their way through um, this. Is there any way to avoid it? Is there anything that they can do? Now, ultimately, it's the the business decision. I'm sure, Adrian, you'll agree. Um, You know, the client will make their decisions. We're just advisors. Um, We don't make the decisions on behalf of the clients. We just outline the potential risks if they do things incorrectly. Ultimately, the risk is theirs and they choose to take it. But it's important, I think, that that business case piece of it uh, is clearly articulated. And actually, you're going to use what you clearly articulate there in that business case when you start communicating with people. So that's key. That's the first um, key principle from my perspective establish your business case. And then just on one other point, because I think at this stage I'm rabbiting on uh, myself, the mobility clause. Um, it is something that I've observed over the years and I've been in HR for, yeah, gosh, over 20 years now at this stage, uh, giving away my age there. But when it comes to mobility, it's probably, you know, when you're introducing a, a new staff handbook or a, a staff handbook for the first time and, and there's reference there to our right to ask you to move wherever we want you to in Ireland uh, or in Dublin or in a geographical location. Um, it's the thing that I find people most commonly raise their hand with and say, I'm not signing that document because you can tell me to move wherever and I've just built my entire life around the south side of Dublin, the north side of Dublin, uh, you know, Newbridge versus Nace, you know, and and while there might be a 20 minute commute, Adrian, oh my God, if you try and drive in and out an ACE, I have uh, done it, you know, to, to work with clients and I also ended up one day going to Dublin, being short of petrol, stuck in traffic on the N7, having to divert off into Nace and by doing so being an hour and a half late to wherever I was trying to get to in Dublin. So Newbridge to Nace is no joke either. The traffic is horrendous there. So I absolutely get um, this lady's point when it comes to, yeah, it's 20 minutes, probably at midnight uh, or maybe at, you know, 11 in the day. But let's throw in school times, school runs and maybe her need to get back to collect children and all the rest of it. I can see why she'd fight it. I can see why she would see it's unfair just at the human level. That's me, Don. Sorry, long winded. (laughs) 
<laughs> done for now, Mary. I'll come back to you in a minute. Um, so, Adrian, kind of similar question to yourself then before we kind of dig deeper into that second case. We have Adrian and the selection and the communication, that kind of stuff. Anything else that you find is kind of a, a key legal obligation or key point for employers? Yeah. Um, Mary Mary came out of the string of nuggets there and, and made a, a number of very important points. And her choice of language is uh, far more modern than mine. So Mary talked about the business case for redundancy. Uh, I, I'm still stuck in 1967 talking about whether or not there's a genuine redundancy situation. Same thing. That's the first key point to bear in mind when you're looking at a possible redundancy. Is there a genuine redundancy situation or is there a genuine business case for redundancy? If there is, then you move on to the second key point. Uh, and this is the second fence at which employers sometimes fall. Uh, have you gone through a fair selection process? Now, if there's just the one job, if you have one employee doing one job uh, and you need to reduce costs and you don't have the same need for employees going forward, there's no selection process at all needed. But if you have 200 manufacturing operatives operating on a series of identical manufacturing lines, producing the same products with interchangeable skills, um, then you do have to go through a fair selection process uh, to satisfy the WRC and the Labour Court that you're not just picking out the people with blue eyes or the people with uh, dark hair or the people who are from a particular country or the people who are of a particular gender uh, or the people who are of a particular religious belief, etc., etc., etc. So there must be a fair selection process. And we will get stuck into that in a minute in, in our second case for the day on. But the third point then, once, once you've gone through a fair selection process, um, is have you gone through a proper communication process with employees? Because for the last 15 years, employment decision-making bodies are saying, look, redundancy can't come out of the blue. If you go back to the beginning of Mary's career, or perhaps further into ancient history and the beginning of my career, people were going into work and they'd be called into a meeting and told, your job is gone, you're being made redundant, here's your notice. Uh, so redundancy was coming out of the blue. You're just not allowed to do that these days. The, uh, the WRC will not accept it. So. People talk about having at-risk meetings now or sending at-risk letters. That's a first communication from an employer to an employee saying, your role is at risk of redundancy. We're worried that it may disappear. Now, we'd like to talk to you about that. And then you're expected to meet with the employee on a number of occasions and give them an opportunity to input into the process because, and I have seen this, not very often, but I have seen it once or twice, an employee might come in with an absolutely brilliant cost-saving idea that enables you to save the jobs or to at least reduce the number of redundancies that will take place. Now, I've worked through this process in the same way as Mary has on many, many occasions over the years. And usually there is no amazing um uh, rabbit that can be pulled out of the hat that will save all of the jobs. But I have seen it happen once or twice where employees came in and they had noticed inefficiencies in the systems, uh, opportunities in the market, and they put brilliant ideas on the table and the employer was able to save jobs, increase profitability, and everybody was happy. It doesn't happen all the time, 
In fact, it happens rarely, but it can happen. So you're expected to go through that communication process and give the opportunity to employees to to feed into uh, efforts to save jobs. I've been through this process recently with a particular client who obviously shall remain nameless, and they have bent over backwards exploring alternatives in an effort to save jobs and to avoid putting people out of work. And they've been very successful in identifying uh, ways and means of saving the jobs. Mary mentioned short-term working, um, temporary layoff, etc. And those and a number of other options were considered, discussed and implemented. And as a result of it, I can safely say that a significant number of jobs have been saved. And in the long run, both the employees and the employee the employer will be the better for it because the employer is managing to keep hold of experienced workers who who know the company and have proven their value in the past. Um, so it is a process that's worth going through, but many employers will, will be uh, alarmed, let's say, that they have to go through this process and won't want to have to go through it. Uh, they're effectively forced to do so by the law these days, Owen. Yeah, 100%. And as you mentioned there, Adrian, I think our second case kind of touches upon some of the things you spoke about there. Can you give us a little bit of an overview about the, the second case we have lined up today? I will, and I'll, I'll really try to keep this shorter on. <laughs> Whatever you have <laughs> so to do. The second case is uh, Castellan Eutectic and Vassar Haley, um, which was before the uh, WRC just a couple of months ago. And um, Mr. Vassar Haley was a machine operator. Um, there were a number of other machine operators with the company and there was a, a reduction in demand for the company's products and the, the company needed to reduce the number of machine operators by three. And it was accepted by everybody pretty much that there was a genuine redundancy situation. There was a good business case for redundancy. But onto the second key point in relation to redundancy is fair selection. There was a big dispute as to whether the company had followed a fair selection process or not. Now, there was an agreement in place between the company and SIP2 that provided that, generally speaking, in redundancy situations, they would adopt the LIFO method to choosing who would go last in, first out. Um, but there were three machine operators who had shorter service with than Mr. Vassar Haley. And yet, Mr. Vassar Haley was selected for redundancy. One of those people with less service was saved. Now, the company explained it by saying that uh, that that other employee had a broader skill set that it needed to retain. And that might have been a legitimate um, explanation, uh, may have been valid, but I'm not sure that the WRC was convinced that it was. And, uh, you know, I suppose you, you begin to get concerned when you hear evidence like uh, what was said at the, the hearing, which was that uh, the company wasn't able to meet with Mr. Vassar Haley before making him redundant because he was out on sick leave and it had sent a registered letter to his home and that had been returned undelivered. You see all of these issues arising in, in lots of redundancy situations. But the bottom, the bottom line was that it never met with and spoke with him. It didn't follow the normal selection process. And so the WRC had real concerns as to whether or not this was a concocted or manufactured redundancy situation, or much more importantly, whether or not there was a fair selection process. Had they unfairly selected Mr. Vassar Haley, for example, because he was out on sick leave, which wouldn't be 
uh, a legitimate thing to do. So ultimately, the WRC um, or the, the Labour Court on appeal concluded that it was uh, an unfair dismissal that they hadn't followed a fair selection process. And it went on to consider how much, if any, compensation Mr. Vassar Haley should be awarded. And that's the second big issue in the case, because the court was deeply unsatisfied by Mr. Vassar Haley's efforts to find alternative employment afterwards. He was suing under the Unfair Dismissals Acts, and those acts say that the employee is under a duty to mitigate their loss after they lose their job. So you can't sit at home with the feet up on the couch watching daytime TV after you lose your job and allow the value of your case to increase. You must be out there actively looking for a job from the day that you become unemployed. Uh, he was asked questions at the hearing about that, and the court described his evidence as being less than credible, evasive, and unforthcoming. Now, they mightn't sound like the most damning terms in day-to-day -day conversation in the pub, but they're very damning terms for the Labour Court to use about anyone's evidence. Um, and on the basis that the court wasn't satisfied that he was really trying to find work, uh, they made an award of no compensation. So a really peric victory for Mr. Vassar Haley, who won, but he got nothing. And all it cost him was time and possibly some money. Um, so there, th those are the two key points. The big one to take away for today's purposes, though, Owen, is this idea that you have to go through a fair selection process. And I know that Mary has a lot of experience in terms of working with clients on that, and, and, and she might like to come in there and, and add to what I've said. Absolutely, Adrian. It's it's a, a real thorny issue, isn't it? Um, and often those clauses or agreements that you have with the trade union uh, come back to bite at a later stage. Um, sometimes they're just simply not revisited by um, an organisation. They have a, a, an agreement in place that they might have put in 10 years ago and they haven't revisited even though there were opportunities to revisit at maybe a three-year interval or something like that or a, or a yearly interval. So I, I would always say, you know, if you're dealing with trade unions, it's important that you're reviewing those agreements and making sure that they're modern up to speed with um, the changes that have happened in the general employment landscape. But I digress a little, but I think it's important because sometimes I am going back to those agreements and looking at them with our clients and saying, look, you, you have agreed with the trade union that it is going to be last in, first out. Um, and that is the approach that you ought to take. Now, if you're going to depart from that, that needs to be clear right at the outset, right at the earliest possible stage right at the announcement stage and let yourself go through the consultation period, whatever length that might be, discussing that particular point because it'll serve you ultimately at the end of the process or if you find yourself in a third party forum trying to defend your decisions, uh, at least you flagged it early that you were going to depart from it and the logic behind it being there. Now, that's not to say that's going to give you a slam dunk when you're in the WRC or uh, in, in the Labour Court or, or anywhere else. It means that you've raised it, it's credibly raised, it's openly discussed, it's transparent right from the beginning. Fair selection 
process, you know, uh, at the practical level, because I have been involved in looking at what my clients are proposing to do. And remember, always you're proposing to do it until it's done until after the consultation process. So it's only a proposal up until such time as as it doesn't have to be agreed, but up until such time as the process is over and everybody's had fair input. Um, and so when it comes to choosing, whether it's last in, first out or a selection matrix, um, then that's the choice of the organization usually. Um, Last in, first out is by far the easiest because you're simply going on length of service. And the last person you employed is going to be the first person out in each pool uh, of people that you have to select from. Uh, And when I talk about a pool, I'm talking about grouping uh, the same jobs together. So you might be grouping your, um, you know, accounts administrators together. You might uh, group your uh, HR advisors versus your HR consultants in separate groupings and apply the last in first out uh, methodology to that. That's by far the simplest. It causes the least amount of trouble. However, it doesn't allow the organization to make decisions based on their best interest moving forward into the future. So in that particular case that Adrian is describing, you know, they wanted to retain um, other people who had uh, less service, but broader skill set. Um, and that's very common. I hear that a lot. Uh, there might be some Gem who has come into the organization who's only there a year or two, but actually is far more impactful than somebody else who's been there longer. And so the organization is making a decision to select people based on uh, criteria. Now, those criteria are key. What are they? You've got they've got to be objective and you've got to be able to back them up. So you can't come out with vague, you know, uh, own is better than Adrian and Adrian is uh, better than Mary because we like her more. We like him more. Um, you know, he he's more of a team player player and Mary's less of a team player. Well, where is that? Where is that documented? And if you're going to use something like your performance review records, um, then you'd want to be sure that you have, I, I think, really about three years, Adrian. I don't know what your view is, but I, I think realistically, if you're going to look at something like that and you're going to put the three of us into a pool together and say one of us is a better team player than the other, that's really subjective. Owen might think he's the best team player. I think I'm the best. And Adrian is thinks he's stellar. Um, and how, unless we have something documented, can we prove that? So when we're advising clients, we're trying to get them to come to concrete 
criterion that they can stand over and um, like length of service that can be there as one of them it doesn't have to be the only one qualifications education training specific skills maybe in the instance of um sales you might look at at reaching of targets and those kind of things but whatever the criteria are you have to be able to stand over it um, and those those spreadsheets i mean my heart breaks when I'm working with clients on them, but they're really hard to put together. They're really hard to put together. And, you know, if you try and manipulate them, it's quite obvious. So you should be really careful about what you're doing. And if you weight them unfairly or if you um, overlook key factors um they can be really easily challenged. And if you find yourself across the table from someone like Adrian Toomey um, looking at this stuff and it doesn't add up and it doesn't make sense, Adrian's going to very happily point that out. 100%. I suppose it's perfect to segue on to my final question. And I'll come to, to both of you for but I think I'll come to yourself, Adrian, first on that exact point. I suppose when companies are thinking about this, looking at it, what steps should employers take to ensure that kind of fair lawful redundancy process, Adrian, any kind of parting advice from your, your set of things? Well, uh, I, I, with apologies, Owen, it's a tough question to answer in, 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 in the one go, but Mary has, um, has touched on a string of key points there. Uh, and uh, when I was listening to her, I thought, gosh, there's, there's five podcasts in, in what she's just said. Um, I suppose the, the most important and overriding point to remember is that redundancy, as far as the Labour Court and the WRC is concerned, is meant to be an impersonal um, situation. Okay, so you're not you're not picking somebody for redundancy um, because uh, of of reasons why you might like want to let them go. Okay, so Mary was comparing the three of us, and she rightly. Owen, uh, had you top of the pile, uh, we might disagree over who comes in second. But the, the bottom line is that a company should be looking at, or an employer should be looking at what it needs going forward in terms of the staff that will remain. So a company might say, well, we need at least two people who can operate that machine in the corner. We need at least three people who can operate any one of the other machines. And we need at least one person who's appropriately qualified in manual handling, health and safety, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So immediately there are three needs on the part of the company that are impersonal. They're not related to the specifics of any individual. And they should be used as the basis on which perhaps a selection matrix or spreadsheet is compiled. And then individuals are measured against the key criteria that have developed. So we need somebody who's got health and safety related qualifications and training. So if you've got health and safety related qualifications and training, uh, you can get up to 10 points in our redundancy selection matrix. If you've got uh, manual handling, that's worth five points. Um, if you're trained to work on the machine in the corner that's so vital, you can get 10 points. Uh, and you'll get one point for each year of service during which you worked on that machine, um, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you, you're building up a matrix that isn't related 
to the personal characteristics of individuals directly, but rather is related to what the business needs going forward. And then you score people against, um, against those clear and objective criteria uh, when you're going through a selection process. Now, I've seen lots of selection processes designed by employers over the year, over the years in the same way as, as Mary has described. And sometimes I think employers see it as being a little bit like, um, I don't know, is it dancing on ice or dancing with the stars where the judges are putting up their scorecards with a score out of 10. And you think, well, those scores are all very subjective. You know, um, you can guess a particular judge is harsh and is always going to put up lower scores than everybody else. When a selection matrix is being filled in, it shouldn't matter who's filling in the matrix. The same score should uh, arise every time. So whether it's you, Owen, Mary, or myself filling in the matrix, if we've got an employee who has spent 12 years working on the machine in the corner, they, we should all immediately give that employee 10 points because they've worked on that machine and an additional 12 points because they have 12 years, one point for each year working on that machine. So we all give that employee 22 points uh, on that particular heading. Um, so when you get to the labor court and you're producing your matrix, no matter what witnesses they're giving evidence as to how they completed or scored the matrix, there can't be room for argument about, about how they did so. You can't allow yourself to be in a situation where the employee's solicitor or barrister or trade union rep is saying, hang on a second now, Mr. Lyons, you had it in for Ms. Cullen from day one. You never liked her because you had a fight over who got to use the kettle in the canteen first. And when you went to score her, uh, you had this lovely uh, fluid um, set of criteria that allowed for all sorts of subjectivity and you scored her particularly harshly, just like that critical judge on Dancing on Ice. Um, so it's, it's about impersonality, uh, ensuring that uh, criteria are objective and that no matter who's filling in the matrix, it's, everybody's going to end up with the, the, the same score or the correct score. Sorry, I'm not even sure, Owen, if that relates to the question that you asked me in the beginning, but I thought it was an important point coming out of what Mary was saying. Um, so in summary, you need a genuine redundancy situation um, or a valid business case. You need to go through a fair selection process uh, and you need to um, go through a, a proper communication or consultation process with employees. They're the key legal uh, criteria. Um, and again, I've broken my promise and I've gone on too long. Can I can I just add, Owen, and I know you're yeah, going to uh, kill me here for this one, jumping in when you're trying to wrap us up. But a lot of people ask me and ask our team here at Insight HR about the communication process. So, you know, what does that look like? And there are differences um, between uh, collective redundancy situation and a non-collective redundancy situation. But in my mind, really, the consultation process in a non-collective uh, situation ought to be a two-week process. Um, and a lot of employers balk at that. A lot of HR teams balk at that. Um, 
But really, it's not a long time and can save you a lot of time and money later when it comes to defending um, yourself in a third party forum. uh, If you've carried out the correct procedures, typically in a collective redundancy situation, I would be saying you you meet with the employee representatives or if you're dealing with the trade union, the trade union, probably about four times over the course of uh, a 30-day period, maybe more, depending on how contentious it is. But that process is controlled by the organization. You do set the agenda. You invite people to contribute to the agenda. And then you run a meeting in the same way as you would run any meeting, uh, allowing input from the relevant parties around your proposals. And there's some very simple things that must be discussed at those meetings. The logic for the redundancies being number one, the selection process you're going to use, number two, the timing and time frame around all of this, number three. Um, And of course, the pay and proposed pay and what you're proposing to give the employees and then anything else um, as well as the alternatives that the employees are suggesting to your proposals. And you have to listen carefully to what those are. Now, in my experience, employees will come forward with ideas and suggestions and some of them won't make sense and some of them might but you've got to consider them and think about them you're not obliged just because someone brings them forward to implement them but you are obliged to consider them and take them seriously um so in in my mind there's very clear things that need to be discussed and it usually isn't such a problem in the collective because the collective the law kind of clearly sets out what it is you must do when it comes to non-collective that's where the problem usually arise and you can see how in this particular case you know the he there wasn't a communication with him directly um you know i equate it to my niece coming over from new york last year while she was in ireland she got an email obviously on irish time so it was quite late in the evening around 8 p.m to say that uh, she was at risk of redundancy. By half past eight, she could no longer access her emails um, and knew that in effect, not only was she at risk, she had just been made redundant and she was locked out of all of their systems and spent, I sat up till 3 a.m. in the morning with my lovely niece trying to comfort and console her and it absolutely ruined her holiday and she was completely distraught about the manner in which she had been handled and treated uh, after her years of service in the company and you know I always think you can't forget they're human beings. It's meant to be impersonal. Of course, it has to be impersonal. Uh, You can't be making decisions based around an individual you don't like for whatever reason or an individual who you perceive to be underperforming or a problem in the organization um, to retain somebody else. But you can certainly approach all of this with 
compassion and empathy and respect. And the more of that that's involved in these processes, the less fallout I see from them. Um, the the more likely it is that you're not going to have litigation arising from them. So again, I I will now stop. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Well, that's exactly what I was hoping for from the two. To be honest, a lot of detail, a lot of expertise. Because you know you're both fountains of knowledge on this topic, and I'd urge anyone who has any, I suppose, queries or concerns on this kind of stuff to listen back again, or even to attend our our webinar next week, where we'll be joined by both of you again to go through this topic, to ask some questions. But no, we really appreciate the time. So thank you to, to both of you for joining us today and sharing all that all that advice and knowledge that you have. Thank you to everyone for listening. We'll catch you next week for the next installment of our podcast. So don't forget to click subscribe and join the discussion on our social media channels. Uh, we'd also obviously like to, I suppose, we also obviously have the ear to the ground for cases like these. So if there's any cases or even topics that you'd like us to talk about in the future, do make sure to reach out to us. We'd love to we'd love to hear what you'd like to hear about. And as always, for HR consultancy services and management you can trust, get in touch with us today at insidehr.ie. Thank you, Mary. And thank you, Adrian. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Owen. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Room podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR that helps you create the human resources systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, go to www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. That's www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. We'd love it if you subscribe, like and share the show with any friends and colleagues who are looking for fresh ideas on how to create the ideal workplace for their business. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or an on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Thanks, and see you soon.